Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today, our guest is Flint Jamison, and he's the founder of Vestas Capital, where he helps to educate engineering leaders on how they can grow and protect their wealth by passively investing in commercial real estate. He spent 20 years in aerospace as an engineer and program manager and finished out his career managing a $120 million program modifying aircraft for the military. And as a former engineering leader who's endured a great deal of burnout, Flint started building a new financial future for his family by purchasing cash-flowing real estate back in 2018. And after his first duplex, he quickly pivoted to commercial real estate where he found the most efficient path to financial freedom. So Flint, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thanks. I'm doing well. We're actually getting a ton of rain in Denver, which is totally unusual, but this is good. Hopefully, we're keeping forest fires at bay this summer. Yes, it seems like there has been a lot of rain this year. <laughs> yes. So, Flynn, can you start off by sharing a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate? Yeah. So, as you mentioned, aerospace. I worked at Boeing for almost 10 years. I designed the 787 wing. But I got started in 2018 in with a duplex. I bird a duplex. It was cool. I learned a lot from that. It wasn't a totally successful burr, but after I sold it three years later, I made some good money on it. There's like a 20 minute story about that. Like everyone has these stories about real estate gone sideways. That one went sideways, but I was able to recover it and actually make some good money. But from there, to sum it up, I left that single family homes market because. I believe I heard on bigger pockets, you can only make on average $200 per unit per month. I was thinking, well, if it's $200 a month per unit and it took me all that pain to get a duplex done, I would need to do 50 more of those before I was financially okay to be living passive or quote unquote passive. Owning a single family home portfolio is hardly passive, right? So that's where I started looking outside the box and eventually came across syndications. Tooked. From there, I got educated and dove in. And so that was 2018 when I did the duplex. Here we are in 2023, and I quit my day job in January. Flint, can we touch on the Burr project that you mentioned a little bit earlier? And just to get into so we can take away some of the lessons learned that you had from uh... that experience. <laughs> Yeah, I got in kind of with an easy button. There was a person offering, I call it a turnkey service for Burr. So they were essentially a wholesaler who partnered with a general contractor. And then they were basically offering these distressed properties for a low price. And then they would say, here's what it's going to cost to renovate. And then here's the projected rents. It's basically like the team's already in place. They're doing everything in bulk for materials. They were getting bulk discounts on, say, insurance and property management and stuff, but just pretty cool. And I did that. The problem is, is they cost about 30% more than projected and took twice as long to renovate. So I ended up going in with a hard money loan on an $80,000 property, thinking it was only going to be three months before I had a renter in there. It actually went six months and cost more. That was painful. I don't know that I could give you any wise 
words of wisdom of how to avoid that, because sometimes you just don't know, right? You could try to vet these people as much as possible as you're a contractor at 20 years of experience, right? You're like, oh yeah, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. And then wild stuff happens. It cash flowed actually $300 per door. And I said it was on average 200. So I got $300 per door. So 600 for that duplex each month, which felt good. In the long run, you multiply. Well, that's still not that much money. After three years, the tenant stopped paying. I'm going to shorten this story a whole lot. She was running a geriatric Alzheimer's facility out of my duplex. So she was arbitraging it, totally breach of lease. My exposure became overwhelming at that point that I realized, right, you've got these geriatric Alzheimer's patients that something could go wrong. My risk exposure was massive. And that was going on for three years. My property management failed me. They did not know that was happening. Anyway, we made it through COVID. They paid rent the whole way through up until January of 22. Stop paying rent. Totally random. So I was like, all right, I'm done. I went out. And that's when we discovered... Once I got a realtor in there, we discovered all of this. Long story short, we found another investor willing to buy it, knowing everything was happening. And the fun part starts where at the closing a week later, she had staff managing these Alzheimer's patients. She was promising them that she owned the property and that she was going to pay them their money. Apparently, she hadn't been paying her staff either. So they started marching around outside with guns. She was locked inside the duplex. I don't know what transpired other than my real estate agent said the week after we closed, they were marching with guns demanding to be paid. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, yeah. So my risk exposure was massive for three years and I had no idea because of... So one thing, visit your property. I can tell you that. It was out of state. And two, I had a hunch that my property manager sucked, but they were cheap. And so I rode with it. And that was probably a bad decision. And it was also, I think it's kind of hard when you're trying to balance work in also, and then you also have to manage the property manager. And at the same time, all of that's going on and just trying to figure out and getting started and like the resources that you need in order to be successful is just some of those things where like you need a bigger network to kind of help you maneuver and manage something like that. And that's very unique. (laughs) So Flint, after that incident with the duplex and the challenges that you had faced on that property there, you said that you were cash flowing $300 per unit. What happened afterwards when you started getting to syndications and walk us through that path and that journey that led you to the point where you were able now to get comfortable financially and be able to walk away from your normal day job? Yeah, such a great question. It was a very long process. And maybe I'll explicitly walk you through the things I had to get through mentally. Actually, I had a coach help me kind of get through some of this. But I have several properties. By the time I retired, I had a fund to fund with a three-property portfolio, a single value add. I'm partnering on three built-to-rent projects. And I had another property coming up. And at some point, I mean, the cash flow isn't really there right now for us. But here's the biggest thing is my wife makes good money. And it came down to, at what point is my life not sustainable anymore? I have a W-2 job that's highly demanding, right? $122 million program. I've got 100 employees. I've got a wife and two children, four and six. And I'm working real estate as nights and weekends. My coach explicitly said, at what point is it not sustainable? I was like, oof. 
that was a long time ago. It wasn't sustainable. I've just been burning the candle on both ends. So he's like, well, what happens if you quit now? I was like, I had kind of gone through that thought process already. I was like, I think we would be fine for a while. He's like, okay, let's assume you can be good for 12 months. Okay. And he's like, what if you're only successful, 50% successful at the end of that 12 months? I said, well, cool. The question is, is are you going to go back to your day job? No, I'm 50% successful. Part of my thought was not only was it unsustainable, but I feel like I was at a hockey stick growth point. Like I can't take on any more to be more successful doing this part-time. So something's got to give. And then the next question was, well, if you fail after 12 months and you're not 50% successful and you do need to go get a day job, can you go get a day job? I said, yes, I can go get another job. I said, well, is that your worst case scenario is to go back to a W-2? Well, yes. And he's like, Flint, you are currently living your worst case scenario. And so these self-reflections, that's a heavy conversation. And I started having those conversations with my wife and within three months, I quit. So yeah, you got to think about financials and where the economy is and how comfortable you are with growth. But at a certain point, you just got to make the leap because you may get to a point where no time is good. And what is your metric for when time is good? You may set an unrealistic metric if the economy has to be this healthy before I leave. It may never show up. So hopefully that answers your question. It's interesting. I heard a coach say one time that, or somebody say one time that they had to hire a coach to help them quit their job, which is essentially (laughs) the same thing here. Yeah. And it was funny is I didn't hire him to help me quit my job. He was a high performance coach, Mm -hmm. but that was the very first one-on-one conversation I had with him because he could see it that I was burnt out. And that was his first step is to figure out how to fix the worst part. So after you made that decision, what were some of the things that you had to... Because you can make the decision like the next day and leave, right? But also because you had a family, had other obligations as well. What are some of the steps that you had to take on the financial side also and things like that to prepare yourself as you made that decision and that date was coming up? Yeah. One is be strategic about when you leave. So I, given my position, I couldn't just give a two weeks notice. It ended up being more than a month. I gave him a month notice and then we negotiated further beyond that. One was I explicitly gave a month notice knowing I was going to quit. Say this was November. I knew I was going to quit. I gave my month notice at the early December because in aerospace, as you know, we get two weeks off for Christmas and New Year's. And I wanted that holiday pay. Wanted to make a wise financial decision. (laughs) But then we ended up negotiating because our bonus didn't pay out until March. Originally, I was going to write that off, but they actually asked me to stay on part-time for a while. So I quit, say, January 15th. And then they they asked me to stay part-time just to consult back, just to make sure because they still hired a replacement. So they kept me on long enough to collect my bonus. And that's what I was like, well, sweet. That kind of worked out for the best of both of us. And then now I told my wife, the last thing on this, which is the most important, is to convince the wife. So when I knew that I needed to quit, I think that was probably October, spent several weeks talking this through with my wife, getting her on board. Because now we decided we're going to live on her salary, the worst case scenario, and whatever I bring in is going to be bonus. And at some point, as you know, in the real estate world, at some point we just skyrocket. 
So she's been trusting that I'll eventually get there. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. When you decided to also shift your focus from the single family duplex side and went into syndications. You talked a little about you have a fund of funds and you do other things in real estate. How did you get started in all of that side of the business? Network, network, network. Another potential long story. My first syndication... So I got in an educational program. All I did was pay 1200 bucks to watch some videos, Syndication 101. And then from there, I ended up partnering with people our first syndication was a 23 unit and ended up failing. I lost a lot of earnest money, but we couldn't raise enough capital among many other things that went sideways on that deal. But we backed out. No investors were harmed. I got harmed by financially. It was basically school of hard knocks for me. I immediately turned around, got coaching on how to be a capital raiser. And then from there, that set me on a totally different path than what I had ever planned. Me as an engineer, I never thought that I was going to be that capital raiser. Because one, I'm not a salesperson. Two, I'm not a marketer. I feel like I could do the other stuff better. But here I am, capital raiser. Now I developed all these relationships with these really strong operators who invite me on to partner with them. So that's kind of how I got into my first successful deal. Then immediately with my coaches into a fund to fund. They were the primary fund and they were inviting us to go along with a fund to fund. So kind of sums it up. What had to shift? Because you mentioned that you didn't set out to be a capital raiser when you first started out. What changed in the way you thought about capital raising that allowed you to be successful in that arena? I realized how bad I was at it <laughs> <laughs> and how important it was to make a deal successful. Like the other stuff, to be honest, with depending on the partnerships, it's like we can figure out due diligence inspections, underwriting. Some of this stuff for me is... It's not rocket science. <laughs> What's funny though is capital raising. I'm like, I don't know. That's the rocket science to me. I don't know how <laughs> any idea how to do that. So I dove in super strong because I had to figure it out and I had to get good at it because that's the only way to make a deal successful or at least close on a deal. Let me put it that way. The only way to close on a deal is to be able to bring the capital. And so then for you, Flint, as you've been building up and as you've been growing out your network, and you experienced some successes and some failed or lessons learned from different opportunities that didn't necessarily pan your way, what continued to allow you to go down this path versus just throwing in the towel? Yeah, this comes down to the why. And what's funny is... So I was tired of the burnout in aerospace... It's been a grind for 20 years. I mean, when I was on the 787, that program was four years late. I was working extreme hours, constant. And no matter where I went, it was just seemed to be the same grind. Like I'm an aerospace geek. I love airplanes. 
but it kind of takes the romanticism out of it, right? You're getting in here, you're dealing with the FAA, you're just dealing with things that aren't fun. And after a while, it, it takes a toll on you. It takes a lot of stress. I wasn't present in my day life when I come home. And I just wanted that freedom. So why did you continue down the path of real estate versus going back, maybe trying something else out? Oh, I believe in real estate, I guess. I don't know anything. Well, I take that back now. Now that I've opened up my eyes to the world of everything outside the W-2, there's so much stuff out there. The only thing I knew was real estate. I felt like I knew it really well and that I could make it successful. So I stuck with it. What are some of the different, I guess, ways that right now within your network, your investors who are investing with you, like what are some of the different structures and things like that, that they're able to get involved with some of the deals that you're working on? And then has that changed from when you first started to where it is now based off of the current market? You're saying the investors? In what yes. ways can like the LPs get involved? Yes. Really, it's just contact me. Yeah. So this is the call to action. Is that where you're triggering me? Yeah. If you want to get a hold of me, go to investwithflint.com. It's easier to remember than Vestas Capital, but it takes you to my Vestas Capital website. Sign up there, get on my calendar. And what I tell most people is I'm in this capital raiser role and it worked out really well for me because I partner with these really experienced operators. These experienced operators are the ones you want to invest with. If they're the only operator, you might only be, say, investing in value adds in Dallas-Fort Worth and that's it where I plan on bringing self-storage. I'm doing built-to-rent new developments right now, done fund-to-funds of portfolios of properties. So I kind of bring this diversified asset options to my investors. So what's your next focus, Splint? Skyrocketing success. <laughs> I Like I said, it's the built-to-rent. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with built-to-rent. You could share a little bit about the built-to-rent. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's Yeah. So it's a development project of single-family homes. So think of it as a community of single-family homes we're building, but we do not turn around and sell the homes to individual buyers. We keep it as one large commercial asset. So say 160-unit property, we put property management office, maintenance, we put all the amenities, dog park, some of these we have ponds, pools, and we create this what feels like a single-family community, but ran like a Class A apartment building. It is commercially ran. All the tenants get to live in their own home. So to take this one step further, the reason why this asset class is so hot is because right now, millennials are in their peak family building years, and they want to get out of houses, but they can't afford housing. So we are creating kind of the best compromise for tenants to be able to leave an apartment and get into a house. And these are nice new houses and yet something that they can afford. What is a time frame of building out one of these types of communities? And what is a time frame to getting all these stuff? So in this 160 unit in particular, we've got three properties, so they're a little bit different. But this one's going to be planned to be built in three years. We'll stabilize for that fourth year and then sell. So actually, we want to be out by year four. That's the plan. Now, there's so many different exit strategies. There's so much institutional money getting thrown at this. We could get bought out 50% complete. I know another built-to-rent syndicator got out even before they cut dirt. They basically got entitlements and engineering approvals and permits in place at two unsolicited offers, and they doubled their investor money in 18 months. They didn't even touch the dirt. So the demand is there. We plan on getting in and getting out and selling for a good return. And where are the markets that you're primarily focused on? 
Yeah, these particular ones, there's one in Foley, Alabama, which is about nine miles from the Gulf Coast or 45 minutes from Pensacola, Florida. And then the other two are Lafayette, Louisiana. Are there any challenges with those markets in order to get the permits or approvals to be able to get this off the ground and running? Such a great question. So when you get into development, there's all this talk about risk. I think it's like ingrained in us when we grew up to know that development is risky. And I am now smarter than that. I think risk is ignorance. So the riskiest part of doing a development is you go buy a piece of land. And if you need it rezoned, you need to get entitlements, you want to get engineering approvals by the city, you could be rejected. If you don't know the city officials, you don't know the processes, or there's the NIMBY culture, not in my backyard where all the other residents in the area come out and they they protest, you can't build there. That, I think, is the riskiest part of building. So where we've chosen to build, one, we partnered with a builder. This is a syndication group and a builder, 30-year builder. He builds within four hours of where he lives. Everybody in the area, he knows how to get land entitled. He knows everyone who to go talk to, and he knows that those cities are advocates for us. Like this city, they love and fully, they love what we're doing. So they're not trying to hinder us. I mean, there's still hurdles and things to jump through, but that's just government paperwork. But at least we aren't going to be held back. And here's the fun part. The builder and the syndication group bought the land and largely funded most of the entitlements and engineering. So now we're bringing investors in when we really start cutting dirt. So we get past that riskiest bit. What are some of the other risks as you get deeper and deeper into this project that could potentially halt it or derail the project? I think the risks at that level, we're talking labor force and cost of materials, which large part is going to affect everyone anyway in the value-add space because we're buying wood and concrete. I mean, we're going to buy more concrete than a value-add, but the labor force building properties, the contractors, we're largely using the same people. So yeah, it's whatever the economy throws at us at that point. And so we have hefty reserves. And then in these particular locations, we could have weather that will slow us down for a week because rain will come in and make it a swamp. So we'll have to halt. Those are really the biggest ones. So how has real estate investing impacted your life so far, Flint? It allowed me to get out of my W-2. <laughs> to be honest, I think that's the best part. I feel happier now because my stress level has changed. I have a a why. I want to be around my children more. I want to have the option to go take more than two weeks of vacation a year. I want to travel with the kids, provide them experiences, create memories. And this has provided far more of that than what a W-2 would. And what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? You know, I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction from a syndication standpoint. Well, for one, just buying single family homes, it's kind of what you expect it to be. You're going to get thrown curveballs and challenges. When I got into syndication, I ended up in a world where it's a team sport. I started meeting just incredible people with all sorts of different backgrounds. I have coaches making me better. Right? I would never, if in 2018, thought I'm going to have all these coaches to make me better and mindset changes, right? It's changing me for the better. And that's real estate took me to this point. And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? Taking action. I, I'd straight up say I could have probably 
been a year ahead of where I'm at now had I taken more action. I was stuck as an engineer, (laughs) surprise, surprise, analysis paralysis, some skepticism. I was being overly cautious and I was trying to know everything. And you don't need to know everything. That's why you find partners. Get skilled at one thing. And I think that that held me back. And Flint, is there anywhere else that our listeners can find out more about you? Yeah, investwithflint.com. And find me on LinkedIn. I do tons of stuff there. I engage. So it's LinkedIn forward slash Flint James. Awesome. Flint, thank you so much for all of your time. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Eileen. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate. We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.